Welcome aboard this week's podcast of Dudes Dish Disney. No cupcakes, sparkles, or glitter mouse ears here, just Dudes Dishing Disney. This episode of Dudes Dish Disney is sponsored by Magic Vacations. Magic Vacations, discover the magic of travel. And now your hosts, the Dudes of Dudes Dish Disney. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dudes Dish Disney. Joining us today is Jonathan, our producer and resident tech dude. What's going on, guys? Also joining us is Ryan, our co-host, the number one Disney dude. What's up, dudes? And I'm Congo Carl, former Jungle Cruise skipper, here to guide you through this week's episode of Dudes Dish Disney. And today, the dudes are helping kick off the 50th anniversary celebration at Walt Disney World. And with such an important topic, we needed some help. And now, to help us, we'd like to introduce to you a returning special guest this week. It's our pleasure to reintroduce a fellow MVP, an educator and history dude with a plethora of knowledge, Brad Rogers. Welcome, Brad. Hey, dudes. Thanks. Appreciate the intro, Carl. Hello, Brad. Hey, Brad. Hey, Ron. Hey, John. Good thanks to be for here. Com- thanks for coming back again. You know, refresh our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and why we rely on you as our history dude. Um, so I'm an avid Disney fan, uh, especially Walt Disney World and Walt Disney himself, the person. Um, and have been invested in learning everything possible um, about Walt Disney and his vision for his theme parks, um, probably since I was in the third grade. And um, throughout my years, I've tried to read everything that I could about the Walt Disney World Resort and the attractions and everything that goes on there. And I have a passion for sharing my knowledge with all that I come in contact with. You certainly do, and that's why you're just the guy for the job today. Um, we have a lot to cover in these anniversary show series. Uh, and to guide us, I was thinking about, we need to ask ourselves that famous old question from the jungle. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? One bite at a time. So we thought we'd set up some timelines for our historical discussion to kind of organize our thoughts. And we really wanted to start before opening day and the 70s, which everyone knows is the milestone we're celebrating. But we wanted to start with some of the work and creation back in the 60s, which helped set the pace to even come up with Walt Disney World. Brad, why don't you take us back to some of those early days and ideas around Walt and what he wanted to do with this dream? Absolutely. So after the initial success of the opening of Disneyland in 1955, um, Walt wanted his parts to be enjoyed by all Americans, but was concerned while looking at data of their attendance that it was a very small percentage of uh, Americans from the eastern coastline that were actually visiting his park in California. And so He became um, interested in finding an opportunity to meet the needs to be able to service all of our country and had started, that's where he started the ball rolling, so to speak, is to start looking to expand a second location to kind of have the gates of his parks accessible to all Americans. Um, But I think a, a big part of that, what really pushed that along was there was an idea to expand Main Street at Disneyland. Now, that idea fell through, as so often Disney ideas do. Um, but one of those expansions was going to be Edison Square. And at Edison Square, there was going to be an attraction that followed the technological advances of basic um, household appliances. Um, that never came to be because the technology did not exist at that time. Um, But he had already been in contact with GE about working with them to formulate that type of attraction. Fast forward a few years, and in 1964, Walt 
was invited to help develop some attractions for the New York's World Fair. And guess who's still there waiting, wanting to partner with Walt Disney is GE. And what do you have that comes out of GE? Uh, excuse me, out of the World's Fair is you have Walt and his Imagineers developing several um, ideas for future attractions, but not on Walt's dime by using these corporate sponsors to develop them. And one of those attractions just happens to be what became known as Carousel of Progress. It was the success of those attractions at the New York's World's Fair that really um, accelerated Walt's vision for having an, an Eastern Disneyland, so to speak. Um, and that's what made him really start looking for those opportunities. Um, but when he sought out that opportunity, he wanted to improve upon what he had done originally in California and not, not repeat the same uh, mishaps that had happened there. As you all know, as our listeners know, unfortunately, Walt was not thrilled with how landlocked his theme park quickly became as they were uh, Disneyland was quickly surrounded by hotels and gas stations and things. And so he sought an opportunity to purchase enough land to never run out of room for all of his ideas. Yeah. Well, before we get too far away, I, I just made a connection, Brad being the history dude. I know Brad, that one of your favorite attractions is the carousel of progress. Yes. You should share with our listeners what your favorite thing to do is in the Carousel of Progress. <laughs> My favorite thing to do in the Carousel of Progress? Yeah. Well, I will tell you, I truly enjoy It's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. So every time the scene changes as we rotate around that stage, I am singing loudly and I am clapping and everyone else is looking at me like I am, I am crazy. Um, but my other favorite pastime on there is to try to find something new that I haven't noticed before. And it's, it's really interesting as to how much um, history is incorporated into that attraction that the basic guest is completely oblivious to. They don't pick up on all the nods um, to past Imagineers and to the history of Walt Disney World as to what um, is featured. In fact, there's an actual picture of Walt Disney himself in the daughter's bedroom. Um, that's um, when they're in the Valentine scene. Um, there's a picture, a black and white photo of a young Walt Disney hanging on the wall there. Um, also, I try to, whenever I can, I try to sit um, front row on the right-hand side uh, for that final scene because it's always fun to see what what new appears on the bulletin board or the court board, I should say, behind the mother in the kitchen at the end where they're in the Christmas scene um, because there's there are lots of hidden gems there um, that will appear on that cork board. So let's, um, let's save some of this because we might need to have you back for a carousel of progress episode. I mean, I feel like there's enough in there to do a whole episode on. And listen, just, I could, I could tell you about carousel of progress till, till the cows go home. We could talk about it all night. I'm and aware, like I said, there's I just, so many hidden gems on it. I just drew the parallels between your love and obsession for history and carousel of progress just now. And, I'm a little slow folks, but. And, I, so, and so Ryan, so that's really, that's, I think a lot of my attraction to Carousel of Progress is because of its significance without, and I've said this before, and I've had people argue with me um, that disagree with my stance, but without Carousel of Progress, you don't have a Walt Disney World. There's some others that he had his hand in, but that attraction, Walt Disney fully was in, involved in the complete development of that attraction for the Magic Kingdom. So, Brad, Carousel of Progress actually took its own trip, right? It went from New York to Absolutely. Disneyland. Absolutely. And then eventually to Disney World, but much later than opening day. It was, you know, it was Tomorrowland was very lean on opening day. Correct. Correct. You mentioned the mistakes in Disneyland, and we talked about land, land, land. There was lots of land available here at Disney World. Unfortunately, it was Swampland. Unfortunately and fortunately. 
The fortunate part of it is, is that Walt Disney got it at a very cheap price, especially while he was able to attain a lot of that land using pseudonyms and other fake industry names before the media learned that it was actually Walt Disney buying up all that swampland in Central Florida. The bad news is it wasn't sustainable for the kind of architecture and structures they needed to build. So excavation began in the late 60s, early 70s, to build the Seven Seas Lagoon and to take that land by dredging it and build what we call the first floor of the Magic Kingdom, which as everyone knows is the tunnel system underneath. Again, one of, the, one of the mistakes that Walt made at Disneyland, and was his pet peeve, is he hated seeing Frontierland people walking through Tomorrowland to go to work. He hated seeing Fantasyland people going through Main Street on the way to work. And with took this, away from the magic. That's right. And with this tunnel system he was able to build in Florida, the Utilidors, um, was really, no pun intended, the foundation for a lot of new technology that he was introducing in this new park. I, I agreed. I agreed totally. Uh, and the common guests, if they're, especially they're a first time visitor to the, to the magic kingdom and they're not an avid Disney fan may not even realize once, once they go underneath the, the train station there at the gates of magic kingdom, that they're actually on the second floor of that park. At its time, you know, the infrastructure, the roads, the dredging of the lakes, the building of the Magic Kingdom, the building of hotels, golf courses, the infrastructure and roads. It was the largest independent construction project in the history of the United States to that time. Right. That's correct. So, a lot of work, a lot of work on into that. And um, anyone who's a fan can see all the things on the net, you know, the famous uh, sliding in the rooms that Ryan would stay at, at the Contemporary Hotel. Yeah. They were slid in like drawers to, yes. a, uh, to a cabinet, right? And all the construction things. And um, the, uh, the building of the uh, structures at the Polynesian, which Jonathan one day would, would go to as a young child at Christmas time and, uh, and have a great first trip. So you know, that foundation right there, those, you know, 1971, the park opens and it's really the Magic Kingdom and a couple hotels. Um, a few months later, a campground and another hotel and a golf course. But really on opening day, not much is going on except the Magic Kingdom, right? That's correct. Do you remember some of the things that happened on opening day that were unique and surprising? Um, some of the things that were surprising about opening day? Um... Well, I, I would say surprising just now because of where we currently sit in 2021 is I would like to go back to opening day and the cost of admission. I <laughs> wish Disney would reinstate um, those ticket prices now in 2021. That's right. The old ticket bo books were yeah. very inexpensive and you could get into the park for low, low prices, right? Yeah, uh, I I think also what stands out to me is, as to many of our listeners and our Disney fans was just the, because it was Walt's vision that was carried through by his brother, Roy, just the, um, the ceremony and the formal dedication of that park that day to Walt and his vision, I, I think, um, signifies the, the relationship that Walt and his brother Roy truly had. And if you truly know their history and the ups and downs that they experienced throughout their life, it just makes it even more meaningful. It was. So opening day, October 1st, 1971, had one thing very different than opening day, July 17th, 1955 of Disneyland. And that was crowds. Disneyland was chaos <laughs> with people showing up, counterfeiting tickets, you know, reaching capacity. And Disney World, the Magic Kingdom, was empty. Everyone mm -hmm. thought there would be huge crowds, and they were minimal the first, really, three or four weeks. And they were minimal, Carl, because people thought it was going to be the same way that it was in Disneyland, and they were trying to avoid that. That's right. 
Um, but some of the things that were put in place there that weren't in Disneyland also mitigated crowds. The monorail system was a true transportation system, unlike in Disneyland, an attraction, right? Right. It, it you know, took you between the hotels, the parking lot, et cetera, right? The distance the parking lot was from the main gate filtered those crowds into various forms of transportation by boat or by monorail sort of disseminated those crowds too, right? So again, they started talking about the logistics very early on and how do you design this in a big, uh, big park. Another plus that the Walt Disney World had over Disneyland is that the asphalt on Main Street was set before guests entered the park. That's true. Now that's a fun fact. (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately disneyland opened by the skin of its teeth and was not truly ready uh, to receive guests when opening day arrived so a couple of things right the magic kingdom when it opened up had several recognizable attractions that were immediately available on opening day Mm -hmm. you know peter pan dumbo a lot of fantasy land kind of mirrored their california counterparts Um, the haunted mansion was there which wasn't a day one Disneyland attraction, but the Haunted Mansion embraced its newfound surroundings. One of the biggest differences between Disneyland and Disney World, we all know, is the omission of New Orleans Square and the inclusion of Liberty Square. Mm -hmm. So the Haunted Mansion was relocated into Liberty Square. Um, In Disneyland, that Haunted Mansion was placed beyond the berm and the stretching room was actually an elevator to bring you below and underneath the berm. That didn't have to be the case in Walt Disney World. And so the stretching room goes up, not down, and allows them into the rest of the show. That, And so that was very interesting how they adapted that to Florida. And if you think about it, since you were all built on the second floor, you really don't want to put elevators going down into a swamp. Right, right. And, you know, another interesting thing about Haunted Mansion, Carl, since we're talking about that right now, is because of the delay in its development for the Disneyland Park, as you know, that from its inception to when it actually opened was a very long time, unfortunately, because they stopped working on it during the New York World's Fair because all the Imagineers were solely concentrating on those attractions and then the untimely death of Walt himself. Um, caused a delay there. But once the Imagineers got back going, working on that project, because Disney World was already in the works, they duplicated everything that they were doing as they were finalizing that that attraction. So it made it possible for that attraction to open on opening day at Walt Disney World because they had already duplicated every single prop um, as they were going along with the Disneyland site. So we have the Haunted Mansion in Liberty Square. And the other thing that changed is you mentioned the World's Fair, the development of great moments with Mr. Lincoln, which moved out to Main Street in California, now was expanded to include the entire Hall of Presidents. Uh And that was logically placed in Liberty Square too. So I love Liberty Square. John and I have talked about this. You know, when I used to work down there, it reminded me of New England and kind of being home in that atmosphere. And, um, and that was placed there very differently for different reasons. And you mentioned, you know, the original inception in California for the Carousel of Progress, Edison Square, Liberty Square was also going to be behind Main Street, the second half of it, and, and included. So another concept that, you know, Disneyland didn't have enough room for, but there was plenty of land in the Magic Kingdom to do that. So, um, so that was very interesting, the Liberty Square being that major factor. Um, so a lot of, you know, traditional uh, Magic Kingdom attractions were located there. A lot of the f- favorites, the Jungle Cruise, the Tiki Room. Uh, but there was a few things unique on opening day, right, that were brand new. And it was one of Ryan's favorite attractions, none other than the Country Bear Band Jamboree. Oh, yes. I believe you've confused me with somebody else. <laughs> Something something <laughs> happened between your walk from the jungle to uh, to Frontierland uh, to Liberty Square made you think that I actually enjoyed Country Bears. I, I'm not sure what happened. Ryan, you don't like Country Bears? I could give zero 
anything you want to call it. He could give them. a raccoon's but, tail about. But, I mean, they're it's... cool. They're cool to say hi to when I walk right by them, if that counts. But it's 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 an OG attraction. It's an opening day attraction. It's which one is of the why originals. you and which is why you and Carl, the original OG himself, uh, like it. I, I'm not, I'm not always up for all the nostalgia. The nostalgia, the nostalgia for me is what I experienced growing up, not what Carl experienced growing up. So gotcha. the Country Bears was very much like the Carousel of Progress and the the Hall of Presidents. It was another idea that had been shelved originally. Uh, Walt Disney had some plans to open the Mineral Springs Ski Resort in California. They fell through. Um, and this idea of having a bear band as an attraction was a carryover. And it felt like it fit very well being down south. But how many times have ideas come along to the Imagineers or to Walt Disney or you know to the company as a whole and they don't go they, they get placed on a shelf and sometimes they're never revisited. And sometimes they are with a, with just a new twist. Um, but that happens so often, which I think is what's so great about Walt Disney world is that it's ever changing, which is exactly what Walt Disney wanted it to be. He intended his parts to always be changing, to not, not be the same forever and ever. And sometimes um, like yourself, Carl, and I, sometimes we have a difficult time with change because we have our our attractions that we want to stay there forever, and, and they get replaced by something new, and we have to understand that that was part of Walt's vision as well, for his parts to constantly be evolving to meet the needs of the guest. Um, but it's true. It's, you know, it wasn't meant to be a museum. It was meant to be uh, fun, and the definition of fun changes generation after generation. There are some classics and there are some things that are timeless. Uh, and the ones that stand the test of time, you know, are still here. And I hate to see things go just because. I'll tell you an opening day thing that this was a mystery to me and it's changed is both, speaking of the country bears, both Coke and Pepsi were sponsors in the park. You could get both Coke and Pepsi in the park. Pepsi sponsored the Country Bears. There was actually some lines in their songs that tied into the old Pepsi jingle, right? And Coke right. was, you know, on Main Street at Casey's Corner and everywhere from day one. Uh, that sense changed, but it was interesting to me that that two competing products would be at the same venue, that no one had an exclusive. And, and I think that also ties back to the success that Walt Disney had had previously with Disneyland. Um, and it goes back to that World's Fair. Every corporation wanted to work with Walt Disney for their exhibits at the World's Fair. Um, Pepsi was one of the sponsors um, of an attraction at the World's Fair. A, a testament to Walt, um, truly, as a yep. businessman himself, um, not just the uh, imagination and creativity that he displayed, but also his ability to be a true entrepreneur to collaborate with others to fund his ideas. You know, and that was the only thing that sort of broke the magic and mystery, if you will, inside the burn of the outside world is occasionally you'd see a corporate sponsor on an attraction, mm -hmm. right? Yes. But other than that, it was a pure world of, of fantasy. Um, you know, in the, in the 70s, that park kind of stayed really the way it was. I happened to be there for the first major addition. I was there in March of 1974, and in late December of 1973, the Pirates of the Caribbean opened. So I was riding it less than three months when it was brand new. And you, for our listeners who don't know the story, people went to Florida and said, where is it? Where's the Pirates? Mm -hmm. And Walt said, well, I didn't build New Orleans, and you guys are so close to the Caribbean. I didn't think that would work, right? That was kind mm -hmm. of the thought. But they missed it so much that they built it and put it in Adventureland. A little smaller, but nevertheless did it. And it was very popular. Um, and I remember being very young and impressed at the animation on it, right? Because you just had never seen that. The other part that was going on in the 70s that was opening up were the hotels. And Ryan, we got to let you talk about your favorite hotel. It was unique from the get-go. It got a lot of press and PR, right? 
I mean, who would have built the hotel with a monorail going through it other than Walt? Yeah, it's pretty impressive, actually, if you think about what they decided to do, even if it's not quite the way that they use it now, right? But the idea of putting the A-frame of the, of the contemporary resort uh, with a monorail running through it was pretty unique. Um, you know, they put inside of it, too, you alluded to this earlier, a modular style design where they could actually pull entire rooms out, refurbish them, and then put them back in if they wanted to. Now, we've learned with recent recent uh, uh, things that they've done there that they no longer pull rooms out and push them back in uh, at the Contemporary Resort, but that was quite the uh, unique idea then. Uh, and actually, in my day job, I work a lot with modular buildings, and it makes sense, you know, to the way to do it, especially because they constantly want to be evolving and changing. And the idea of the contemporary resort itself was to have that kind of, you know, view of a resort is to be able to constantly change with the times. Um, so, yeah, I mean, contemporary resort was was the original, uh, you know, it's and still a fan favorite to this day. Uh, and not to mention one of the easiest parks to walk to Magic Kingdom from uh, as a result. Truly is right, Ryan. I, I thought you would have mentioned some of some of the significant moments that have occurred at the contemporary. I thought my, maybe you would mention. My, my brain Nixon. doesn't work the way that your brain does, Brad. <laughs> and I was fully aware that you would help us out with those facts. So please, my friend, have at it. Uh, well, not not to bore you, Ryan, um, but as you may or may not be aware. Uh, Richard Nixon actually gave a, a press release from the contemporary during the whole Watergate scandal. Um, also, an interesting thing that since Carl brought up the, the resorts that were there, the Seven Seas Lagoon initially was supposed to have seven resorts around it as well. Unfortunately, the, the gas crisis of the early 70s um, suspended all of that expansion at that time just because out of fear of what was gonna happen um, economically moving forward. Uh, the, the company decided not to invest the money in building those properties at that time. Very true, but the Seven Seas Lagoon did end up having a couple unique features of it. And uh, Jonathan, I know, you know one of your early favorites was the Poly. We've talked about it still as a favorite what do you think it was like back then opening day to, to be uh, staying at the Polynesian before your vacation at the magic kingdom? It had to have been something incredible. It had to have been that tropical feeling of something that you would have never, ever thought you'd experience, um, especially for that time and what, what you were getting. Most people hadn't been anywhere near that. Um, I could only imagine what it is myself. I was nowhere near being born at that point. We're looking another 20 years down the road till I was born, but even still it, it's, it's something today that you only wish you could probably get in some of the resorts compared to what you're seeing now, which again, what you see now is still remarkable for what these hotels and resorts offer, especially on the deluxe side. Only then it was probably 10 times higher stepped up than what we're seeing now. What I remember about the Polynesian in its early days is that's where I stayed as a child. And um, my, you, you, met, you hit the nail on the head there, John. You know, people, it was tough on the East Coast to go to Hawaii. That was my mom's dream to go to Hawaii. Um, my father jokes, said, ah, instead I'm taking her to the Polynesian. And eventually he did take my mom to Hawaii, but, you know, he teased about that being it. And um, little known fact, Ryan, uh, at 11 years old, my mother handmade for my father and I my first matching Hawaiian shirt. And now we finally have the connection to the obsession <laughs> of the Hawaiian shirts. It makes so much sense now. Especially because really his mom handmade it. I mean, like how, like how, like seriously, how old and vintage can you get other than yeah. having mom make your clothing? When we were doing mem the memory show, I was looking for some pictures and I have some with dad and I in it. Unfortunately, we're sitting on the couch in the Polynesian hotel watching the TV because we thought it was so cool. 
the, the hotels had the TV of like what's going on in Disney World and the activities and a map and pictures of, you know, everything going on. I was like, wow, an in-room commercial of what's outside our door, right? I and, think uh, it's kind of amazing that you were amazed by a television in a hotel room. That's amazing to me. No, we were, we were amazed by the fact that there was, uh, you know, a resort TV, right? Just about all that was going yeah. on. We just arrived there. You know, we, we arrived on a Friday, went to the Magic Kingdom, came back, had to get changed for the luau, put the shirts on and we were watching. Holy crap. Look at this. Look at this TV. And it's still one of those things today that people do. Right. When you stay in, you turn on that that resort see, TV. See, what's funny to me is like it, it's what automatically pops up now in, in hotels everywhere, not even just right. on the resorts. Yeah. Right. You turn on your TV. And I know when John and I shared a room together, even though it was under my name, somehow his name was on the TV. I don't know what the heck that was all about, but <laughs> but whatever. You know, but we'll touch that one that. later. It's, it's because he's the tech dude. Yeah, they knew the tech dude was in town. But but uh, what's funny to me is you say, you know, you say, oh yeah, it's amazing that they still have that and people still watch that. Like I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's like get yeah. me off of this. Where's HBO? You know, right. like get me right. get me something else. Yeah. So that was my first Hawaiian shirt. Went to the Luau. The other thing I do have pictures of distinctly is, and they still have today. Talk about nostalgia is the um, the water mice, right? The little boats that you could rent out and go around there. That was a thing. But what also was there is Dick Nonis, who went on to be a high-ranking official, invented a wave machine off of one of the islands of the Seven Seas Lagoon, and it would make waves. And they were you could get surfboards and ride the surf in. Um, and they only did it uh, on Saturdays because it would churn up the beautiful lagoon and kind of murky the waters there right but i have pictures of me and my father swimming in the lake something you can't do now all i know is that ever since then and then they shut off the wave maker the only thing making waves at the polynesian is you carl <laughs> hey now that i just needed to, i needed to show that i have some corny jungle here jungle cruise kind of humor too that's all unfortunately those waves are typically in a punch bowl at trader sam's grotto so i don't know if i would say unfortunately <laughs> Well, yeah, the Polynesian, uh, a fan favorite. And, uh, you know, one of those things in contemporary, too, you could swim in the lakes. Imagine swimming in those lakes and not only swimming, but water skiing and uh, and taking sailboats out and other different watercraft. It was uh, part of the recreations. Right. And they were selling it as a recreation destination, Brad. And um, other than that, in the 70s, there wasn't much going on. Um, the true, you, the true opening ceremonies was not October 1st, but it was October 25th. Right. As we, as we go through the seventies, you know, you talked about the opening of Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and, and then the next major milestone, um, was the opening of Space Mountain, um, which got lots of fanfare and, uh, press coverage by the media. Um, there was a big to do made about, um, Space Mountain, um, which is different at Walt Disney World than it is at Disneyland. So although it's, it appears in both parks, the attractions are not the same um, in both parks. Um, but Carl, do you remember um, when Disney World opened, aside from, you know, Country Bear Jamboree and the arcade and the Diamond Horseshoe Review and Haunted Mansion, there was a huge void there that was intentionally left vacant in Frontierland. Uh, Do you yeah. remember what the original plan was for that area? Tell our listeners about one of my favorite things that never happened, the Great Western River Expedition. Yeah, the, the Western River Expedition um, was supposed to go there in that section uh, it was intentionally left vacant because there was plans to expand uh, for it to go there. And it was a Western-themed pavilion um, that was going to be designed to look like a Western plateau. Um, it was going to have a, um, a mine car roller coaster attraction, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. It was also going to have an attraction using a boat system similar to Pirates of the Caribbean that went around um, Western scenes. There was even supposed to be a nighttime show that was going to be featured um, in that area. 
unfortunately it never came it never came to be right however and a log, and a log flume yeah that's correct and a log I, flume I, inside yep however as we get to the end of that decade as we near the end of the 70s um the idea of that runaway mine car roller coaster is what is now known as the wildest ride in the wilderness big thunder mountain railroad yeah it's amazing how that that uh really transferred and it, that idea was born out of that concept you're absolutely right in mm -hmm. disney world a lot of people think it was a disneyland thing when they when they changed you know nature's wonderland train ride into that but it was really the concept was part of the original walt disney world and by the way that's the reason why the pirates wasn't built there they were going to have a boat ride through the river that was going that to be west right that is that is that is correct and you know it's funny how things are interconnected but it's actually um it's actually a good thing that um the western river expedition didn't get uh, developed in the early 70s and big thunder mountain didn't happen then because of technology technology advances um because of that delay and the the construction of space mountain once big thunder mountain railroad was actually developed the rod is a much smoother rod now than what it would have been had it been built in the early 70s and that's that's a that's an understatement considering how wide that wild that ride can be so some other areas of the vacation kingdom that was developed through the 70s is the fort wilderness campground and uh, a unique part of fort wilderness campground was this concept that and it was really the first concept where disney said let's get into an economic solution for any family to come and visit disney world whether you wanted to throw up a tent or rent a trailer, uh, you could do it at Fort Wilderness. And uh, we did a whole show on it. I mean, Fort Wilderness has grown much more than what it is today. There's, it's a great thing to see and do, but at its humble beginnings was nothing more than a, you know, a glamorized campground, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with a, with a swimming pool and some activities like horseback riding and canoe, paddling a canoe. But they also had something that I rode when I was a kid there, they just built was the Fort Wilderness Railroad. And it was a railroad system that took you up to the docks to take the boat to the Magic Kingdom and took you around the various sections of the campground. Um, you know, those have since been re replaced right. with buses and trams. Right. That was a very unique uh, aspect to the uh, original campground. Yeah. Uh, and at one time, Carl, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Disney's Fort Wilderness was the largest campground in the United States. I, I, I don't think it currently holds that record, but I know at one time. You're was. correct. Yeah, it, you're correct. It was it, you know, it, it gained in popularity and people, you know, people uh, went and enjoyed it and it's been a staple. Uh, the other thing that was built shortly after that was an island in the middle of Bay Lake, which is no longer there. It was originally called, I remember seeing the map in my hotel room, that Western River expedition was, was on the map, and this island with a pirate ship, it was called Treasure Island, and uh, it was a future attraction. Uh, it came on later in the 70s, and it became uh, a wonderful uh, zoological park bird sanctuary by the name of Discovery Island. Mm -hmm which unfortunately is no longer available either. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things I regret too, being in the college program to go yeah. over there. I could have gone over there for the day and seen it uh, because it was quite the thing in its day. Um, yeah. And it certainly saw its time and, and the animals got relocated to Animal Kingdom in a future day and, and other places. But um, it was a nice expedition uh, for people to do that half a day. And then later on in the day, the world's first theme water park in water country, right? Over at, yeah. yes. over at there, that was built in the, in the late seventies, early eighties, right? Yes. And it's, it's interesting to think back how just those examples show you how much evolution has actually occurred 
um, on the Walt Disney World Resort property. While there are those things that are constant um, that, that have stayed the same, there's been so much change as well. Um, and I, I, I unfortunately never got to experience water country, um, even though I had visited Walt Disney World while it was still open. Um, those trips that I had back as a young kid, we did not spend time at Discovery Island or Water Country. Our time was spent in the actual theme parks. Yeah, and I think that's the message that I have to our listeners and to our clients. Go experience it all, even the things outside the park, because you don't know how long things are going to be around. Right. You know? And uh, they're they're very timely for its uh, its period of time, and and then in a fleeting moment, it's gone, right? And uh, how cool to say that you've been able to experience something that's no longer there. I don't know. There's a guy that recently camped out on Discovery Island. He found a way to do it. So (laughs) (laughs) why not? Right. I mean, pretty sure he got arrested, but but yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure he's facing some, some legal challenges with that stay. I'd love to know who booked that trip and how much money they made off of that one. (laughs) Amazing. Right. Yeah, you mentioned the prices on opening day. That was one thing. You know, the prices for the hotels, the contemporary and the and the uh, Polynesian was $25 a night on opening day. And the campground later on was when it first opened $5 a night. I think even you take $25 a night and, and even at like $20, $21, that's only $159.10. That's a steal right there. So you're not going to stay at the contemporary for $159.10. So that's another discussion when we talk about the business of Disney. <laughs> Do you remember some of the hotels that were going to be built around that Seven Seas Lagoon that weren't? Because I remember, again, I'm thinking of that hotel map and there was different properties, right? I remember the Persian Hotel. Yes. Was one. Um, yeah, the Persian Hotel. Um, uh Gosh. The Venetian Hotel was one, I think, too. Um, unfortunately, like I said before, the that gas crisis halted the brakes on all that construction. So the 70s, we also talked about this in a recent retreat. You know, we talked about this in the attractions. The features were around animatronics. There wasn't really action rides there, right? It was not till later that Space Mountain got is sort of the first action ride and then later Thunder Mountain. Um, and that was really all about the wowing technology and that wowing technology was really showcased as you bridged from the seventies into the eighties, because the 21st century started on October 1st, 1982 with the opening of Epcot center. Yes. Which, which the, the name and the idea um, that Walt that came from Walt, um, although in essence it kind of shared that vision, but yet it's so far away from what Walt uh, initially intended for um, that area to become um, that experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Um, and there's some very interesting things about Epcot. Just one of the things that stands out that many guests notice right away is unlike magic kingdom, the monorail actually goes inside of the gates. We'll say of Epcot where it doesn't do that at the magic kingdom. And the reason for that is in initial development, Epcot was supposed to be two theme parks. There weren't supposed to be this one big world showcase and future world. They were supposed to be two separate theme parks. However, once they started building um, the, the monorail, they found some major sinkhole issues that would not allow them to continue to expand that route any further than they already had. Um, however, they didn't tear down the construction that had already been put in place. They just rerouted everything. Um, so I think that's kind of a unique aspect of Epcot in that you can ride the monorail that goes to Epcot and actually go into the park to people watch and to know that originally beyond Walt's idea for that community, not a theme park, but a community 
But once they changed it to being a theme park and it was supposed to be two separate entities, how that did not happen and that kind of caveat there that prevented it from happening was that they could not complete the monorail route. You know, it's amazing uh, not to go too far away from the history, but that is single-handedly my favorite part of the monorail anywhere at Disney. And when I used to travel for my day job into Florida, if I was in central Florida, I would literally just go and grab a meal uh, on the monorail route just so that I could go ride the monorail inside of Epcot. And then I'd get back in my car and I'd go wherever I needed to go. Yeah. You know, you know, you say that's your favorite part of the monorail. I will tell you as a kid growing up, you know, as a kid, I always got excited every time we went through the contemporary resort. You can't help, but that's totally cool that you're about to go through a hotel. But as I got older, I truly appreciated every time the monorail on that Epcot route would go past the landing strip where Walt used to land his private jet um, when construction had begun on the Walt Disney World Resort there. Just because, again, Ryan, because of that historical connection to Walt himself. Um, you said it before I could, Brad. <laughs> this, this is, I know, I'm trying to beat you to the punchline. This is completely off topic, but I'm going to throw this out there anyway. Do you know that there were grooves cut into that landing strip so that when the tires ran over it, it would, the, the vibrations would emulate the sound of when you wish upon a star? That doesn't surprise me. I honestly did not know that, but that does not, does not surprise me at all. It's very Disney. <laughs> it is. It's very cool. Though. That's it. Yeah. It's, um, and that, la that landing strip was very underutilized. You know, they yes. didn't maintain it. And uh, no. it's a shame because that would, it's, that would have been a great feature. If, if you were, think about it, if you were going to Disney World today, balling, wouldn't it be great to bring your private jet, land right there? It's like right, right kind of around where the Wilderness Lodge is now. Um, right. That area. It's, it's it's depressing to see what it has become. You know, they've, they've tried to conceal it with some trees and whatnot, but you can still knowing where it is, it's still easy to find. And unfortunately it's basically a parking area for a lot of construction equipment. Yeah. Yeah. It is a shame, but wait, um, wait, wait, before we go further, Carl, you mean when you're taking us down on the private jet, we're not landing there. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> wait, I thought that was the plan. Yeah, I thought you said they were going to clear the trees and everything just for you because the old Jungle Cruise skipper was coming home. The best I can do is take you from MCO on a helicopter to get there. Done. I'm in. It's on record. It's on record. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so 1982, big year, right? Big change. Look, at there's so much that happened in the 70s. We could do a whole show on it. You know, I'm thinking about you know, the Main Street Electrical Parade and some of the other things that happened in the 70s. But it, it was kind of quiet, you know, in the later 70s as far as new things. And then in 80, the 80s, we get rolling with Epcot. And um, it, it was just a fantastic. We've done a show. Um, I was there opening day, October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. We've done a show. We've talked about that. You know, but I'll tell you, October 1st, when it was, you know, I just spent the whole day in Future World. When it opened up, you could spend a whole day just in Future World. There was so much to see and do. The Universe of Energy was a 45-minute ride. Okay? The Land yeah. Pavilion had three attractions in it. So you could easily spend an hour in the land between the boat ride, the movie, and the kitchen cabaret. There was lots to see and do just, just there, right? Um, so those were two very long attractions. The World of Motion, that was a 20-minute ride. I mean, there was real longevity to the length of the attractions uh, that were there compared to their ears. And I think that's an interesting thing. We talked about Epcot, you know, being built as edutainment. And it takes you some time to get a message across, repeat it, and have it sink in. You know that as an educator, Brad, mm -hmm. and, and how you work on um, lessons and plans for your students, right? You got to tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, then tell them what you told them, right? Just like right. Sales, Ryan. you've got to have that repetition. And those rides were long enough to repeat those messages. So when you left the land, you felt a sense of stewardship towards the environment. When you left energy, 
you had an appreciation for the sophistication of fossil fuels and other forms of energy, which in the 80s were just emerging, solar, wind, et cetera. And you had an appreciation for that. You had an appreciation for the history of communications um, in Spaceship Earth. And uh, you really, between that and then going into Communicore, there was lots to see and do a full day, right? Just at Future World. And, um, you know, unfortunately that's not the case there. I hope by the time Epcot turns 40, they'll bring back some of that glory and luster. That's a year, a little more than a year away. Um, but, uh, you know, there, and I remember the fanfare, um, the first family, uh, coming in the gates, uh, the first family at the Magic Kingdom when it opened up in 1971 was a mother and dad, and they were blonde. He kind of looked like Jack Nicholas. He was actually on my boat on the Jungle Cruise once, and two blonde-haired kids. And in the um, opening day, the family that was first family was all brunettes. You know, they were all. It was interesting how that that was. And you were wondering how did they pick them out of the crowd? And there was a big news thing in the next day in the Orlando. There was some other family that said, we were there early at 4 a.m. in the morning. We were hiding in the parking lot. We were the first family, but we didn't get picked. These other folks got picked. And I don't know. They looked ragged and haggard. They didn't look like the business. <laughs> looked, so, think, so they didn't pass the presentability no, no, test. The, the dad talking had summer teeth, you know? Yeah. Right? That explains so, why I've never been chosen to be the family of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, yeah, so that I mean, I, I remember that opening the, the the fanfare. It was so exciting and new and modern, right? Right. At that yeah. time, I also and, told the story that I was in the labor pool working there in the last two days. Um, they needed help; they were way behind. So on, I was, I jumped in extra hours on it would have been September 29th. And I worked in Communicore, um, the section of Communicore that, that uh, looped around by Spaceship Earth. And I was pulling cables in the ceiling uh, for the communication center uh, at Communicore and the reservation center at AT&T. And, you know, up in the ceilings with the drop tiles, pulling cables uh, as just a kid, you know, being told by these, these guys, do this, do that. And then the second day, September 30th, um, late at night, I was rolling sod behind Spaceship Earth. So, um, Carl, so, you're a Disney jack of all trades. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, that was, you know, they, they needed help. All the college kids were like, yeah. oh, they're going to pay us extra hours, you know, because you yeah. never get overtime. And uh, we jumped into the labor pool and did that. And um, that was, you felt part of it. And then I got clean, dressed up October 1st, and I had taken those three days off. One, two were assigned to me anyways. I, I took a third day off and I went to, I went to uh, World World Showcase on October 2nd and 3rd. Um, but uh, October 1st, 1982 was all about future world. world. Future world yeah. Um, at, the, at that time, Carl, because I was just a mere child at that time, um how was um spaceship earth on opening day it was amazing it, you know it was amazing that the, the technology and again it was the next generation of uh audio animatronics mm -hmm. the realism and moving was you know a step up from pirates at the time mm -hmm. and it was the first time i remember there in universe of energy being introduced to the smellitzer uh mm -hmm. effect right yeah rome was burning and that right was you know the big yeah. thing um and so and universe of energy you smelled the lava uh so that was a, a, an interesting uh concept of it being new what i do remember about spaceship earth though is that when you turned around and came backwards the mechanic the, the mechanic it felt like it needed like grease on the wheels it was just this terrible screeching and and uh loud noise as you went backwards and i was like this is not wasn't meant to be for show you know eventually they got it ironed out uh, that i remember some attractions that were you know a lot of signs of things coming right the living seas was coming horizons was coming um so a lot yet to be built um and i also remember some attractions that i was glad to see go we talk about nostalgia leaving you know the kitchen cabaret had no business being in the land pavilion <laughs> 
And if you've ever gone online and seen what the kitchen cabaret was, it was a singing fruits, vegetables, and dairy products and meats, singing about the values of good nutrition in the four food groups. How'd that turn out? Oh, man, that was... I tell you, somebody was on something when they built that attraction. <laughs> it was the 70s and 80s, Carl. Oh, I mean, you see a big old broccoli singing veggie, veggie, fruit, fruit. I mean. Yeah, one guy's weird. back behind the area rolling sod and the other guy's playing with, <laughs> with, with talking fruits and vegetables. Right. But I'll tell you, there was something that was missing and it didn't come until 1983. There was a pavilion that was half built. And it was missing its major attraction. And in 1983, Jonathan, who was born? It was Figment. So for those who don't know, Figment is probably one of my favorite Disney characters. This guy is crazy. This little purple, little dinosaur thing, whatever you want to call it, this figment of your imagination is crazy he is everything that you want to do with your brain like if you want to go one way it wants to go a different direction it's everything that you shouldn't do formed up into a character now then again some of this is my opinion of what he really is but this guy is awesome i know some other folks out there ryan especially aren't a huge fan of him carl i know you can't stand the guy but I like him. I like him. Look at there. When he originally was there and the attract before the attraction was built, Dreamfinder and Figment were walking characters out in the gardens there. And it was a great little shtick that they would put on and pose for pictures. And he had a great habit of grabbing little kids hats in his mouth and taking them off as he posed for pictures and flipping them up the air in his mouth and catching them. And it was a great shtick. And how they did it was just, you know, classic. Um, and he, but he was out there before 83 kind of talking about things to come. Right. Um, and uh, but he was really born in that ride. And uh, I, I'm fine with him. I'm fine with him as uh, the original Epcot OG IP. Here's my uh, Ryan, problem. I'm... Here's my problem. Hang on. Is we just went from rolling sod to singing broccoli to a purple <laughs> dinosaur that has an imagination. <laughs> It was Ryan, the 80s. I'm looking at Epcot in a whole new light right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm concerned, Ryan, because John, I think I just heard John say that you don't care for Figment. That's, but, that's fake but, news. That's okay, fake I was news. about to say, because I remember seeing a picture of a younger Ryan with a Figment here recently. Yes, I, I do have a picture floating around the interwebs of me in a Figment hat. <laughs> And I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it because I'm like, John, I was like six, <laughs> right? That's, that's first. I still don't hate figment. I still don't have a problem with figment. Uh, I do prefer the original figment, right? Um, to what figment is now, but figment is a classic, man. I, I, I'm all about him. I, I, I don't dislike him. I just, I just don't like him as much as I did. Let me rephrase. I just don't like him as much as John likes him. Let's just put it that way. I gotcha. Gotcha. John, stand corrected. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm standing corrected at this moment. I think John has just converted us over the last couple of years. That's all. No, I was always there. I just still think it's really silly that he picks Figment in a fantasy draft about characters, doodly characters. I mean, that, that's where he lost me with Figment. Look at gotcha. the 80s really were all about um, Epcot, you know, really. And because they kept opening new countries, new pavilions, right? yeah attractions right and carl that you make an excellent point because there was so much energy and attention focused on epcot that really things were not really active at the magic kingdom during the 80s everything focused on um epcot and like you said expanding world showcase opening new pavilions opening new attractions um i can remember um, as a young child going to Body Wars um, when when it opened. Um, and I say young child, but I was probably, uh, I was probably in middle school uh, the first time I went to Body Wars. Um, Body Wars scared me as a kid. I was actually frightened by it. I can't tell you why. Maybe there was something about the thought of a, 
splinter killing me. Um, I don't know, but but uh, body work scared me. See, that's interesting. So I was at the beginning of Epcot and then uh, was there, you know, a, a couple years later and then didn't wasn't there for that whole pavilion to open up. And I missed that. The next time I went back was that had closed. Right. So that was how long my trips were in between there uh, during that period of time. One of the things that big things that did happen in 86, which was a big deal in Epcot, though, was uh, Captain EO's show, right? I mean, 80s was such the Michael Jackson year, right? And little do we know about him then what we know now. But, you know, that was a big, major thing. After, after you know, Star Wars and Lucasfilms teaming up in Disneyland, to get these kind of names, I mean, definitely part of the Eisner area, right, where they're getting in. Uh, cross IPs, um, but that was a big deal, and it was that conversion in the theater at the Journey to Imagination uh, Pavilions Theater was a 3D movie, and this went to 4D. Uh, it had those extra special effects, and that was the first 4D theater in any Walt Disney World uh, property. And then, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s, that became a thing. They were very popular. I'm marking this down on my timeline, by the way. Purple Dinosaur, Michael Jackson. <laughs> I'm just keeping the audience posted of what my timeline is going to look like after the show is completed. Yeah, but you think about all those additional, you know, uh, things that opened. You're right, Brad. The focus was on Epcot with all of those things. There's only a couple things that happened uh, in the 80s outside of Epcot. And both in 1989. The first was again disney kind of being the first to really kick things up a notch was um the opening of typhoon lagoon and they took their water park to a whole new level right uh and, and that still stands today as sort of a testimony and uh it really was the ultimate of water parks it, it killed river country as far as what it was and uh, became a fan favorite, still is today, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happened in 1989 was the opening of Disney MGM Studios. Tell us a little bit about that, Brad. Well, um, it's interesting that you bring it up because it was a, I feel like that was probably the most rushed theme park <laughs> at Walt Disney World. And it was because of the competitor. Um, Universal had broken ground on them building a, a theme park in Central Florida um, that was focused on that Hollywood studio type set. And Disney wanted to compete with it. And so Disney um, began uh, construction in 87 um, to build this park. Um, and they opened it May 1st, 1989, but it was, it was a very limited opening. There was, there was only a handful of attractions there opening, opening day. Um, you had the great movie ride and you had the studio backlot tour. Um, now that was pretty much all that existed as far as an attraction on the opening day later that summer. The Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular Show came along, but as far as opening day, it was it was that limited. It was the great movie ride and the studio backlot tour, which don't get me wrong, I missed both of those attractions. I loved both of them. Great attractions, but they had to make way to new and better things. Um, but I feel like Disney was trying to get the upper leg, so to speak, own Universal and have their studios set theme park open before Universal could complete theirs. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the um, the Universal uh, war, if you will, mm -hmm. um, but never really in this context of opening. And, uh, you know, we're very pro Universal on the show, too. And uh, it would be interesting to do a historical comparison of of what the uh, studios was doing and the trials and tribulations of uh, universal Florida as well. But I think you're right. It was a rush job and um, it really didn't get exciting until the nineties 
um, with Hollywood Studios. And that's really where it took off. And, you know, Brad, we've enjoyed having you on the show. Would you come back and, and we can pick things up in the 90s and, and, and talk more about the uh, Hollywood Studios? Absolutely. I would love to. Well, there you go. From the first two decades at Walt Disney World, from two original OGs. <laughs> Later, dudes. Later, dudes. Later, dudes. Later, dudes. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dudes Dish Disney. Please check us out on social media on Facebook.com at Dudes Dish Disney, on Instagram at Dudes Dish Disney, on Twitter at Disney underscore dish. Please visit our sponsor, Magic Vacations at magicvacations.net. More than just a travel agency, Magic Vacations has over 60 Magic Vacation planners committed to bringing you white glove concierge service. Using a Magic Vacation Planner allows you to spend more time making memories and less time worrying about the details. For all your Disney, Universal, Cruise, and global travel, go to magicvacations.net. Magic Vacations. Discover the magic of travel.